Welcome to this latest episode of Squashing the Market with Bill Ullman. I am delighted to have as my guest today, Zach Prince. Zach is the founder and CEO of BlockFi, a New York-based company that enables cryptocurrency investors to borrow against their crypto holdings and also earn interest on their accounts. It's a unique company. Welcome, Zach. Thanks for having me, Bill. Great to see you. I'm particularly excited to have Zach here today on this podcast because we are going to be talking about probably the most exciting area of fintech today, which is cryptocurrencies, blockchain, Bitcoin, and digital assets. It, it is the hottest thing, and I know that because my 104-year-old grandmother asked me about Bitcoin the other day and investing in it. So, um, Zach, I am delighted to have an expert here with me to discuss this. So before we get into all that, let's talk about your background and your journey from Texas State University to founder of one of the hottest fintech companies in New York City. Yeah, sure. So uh, growing up, I was a nationally ranked competitive tennis player. Um, as you know, I've, I've switched over to squash a little bit. Being in New York, it's a lot easier to play squash than, than tennis, but uh, came out of school debt-free, unlike uh, quite a few other people in my generation. I actually was a semi-professional online poker player throughout college. Uh, there was an online poker boom uh, back in 2003, 2004. They started showing it on ESPN and online poker sites uh, were able to take deposits from credit cards. And eventually that got snipped in the bud a little bit, but I did pretty well as a semi-professional poker player, came out of school with no debt. I always thought that I would work in the financial industry. I've always been attracted to finance. I was asking my parents for stocks for Christmas when I was like 10 years old and I ended up graduating in May of 2009. Not the best time to be looking for a job in the financial right industry. Right in the middle of the financial Right crisis. in the middle of it. So uh, I actually ended up getting a job in New York at an advertising technology company called AdMeld, which was at the forefront of creating markets around digital advertising. So that industry at the time was going through a transformation from advertisers calling the New York Times and saying, I have a million dollars, I want to buy ads on your website. And the New York Times would say, okay, we can sell you this many and we'll fax over the order and you can pay us and then we'll run the ads for you. And that industry was going through a transformation where all of that was starting to happen in real time. And advertisers were starting to be able to target individuals and they were hosting auctions for every individual ad on the page. And AdMills was one of the first exchanges that enabled all of that activity. Sort of like eBay or Amazon for online advertising. Yeah, exactly. That company did really well. I was there for about three and a half years. Then we got acquired by Google. Spent a little bit of time at Google, left with some of my colleagues to start the U.S. version of a German-based ad tech company that basically we saw at Google go from being not even a blip on the radar to being a really massive buyer of digital media in Europe. So we basically opened up that company in the U.S. market. That grew really quickly and uh, was ultimately successfully acquired. And then more recently and more relevantly for BlockFi and also for this podcast, I moved into fintech at two different companies. One where you and I crossed paths a little bit, Orchard Platform. I ran sales and business development there for about three years, left after the Series B and joined an online consumer lender called Zibi. Along the way, I got interested in Bitcoin. Uh, late 2014, I actually bought Bitcoin for the first time. I was writing a, a blog on the side called The Better Finance Guru and talking about interesting stuff that was happening in fintech from you know, investing in online lending platforms to robo-advisors to Bitcoin. You know, I bought it for the first time when it was 300, sold it when I was up 3x a couple months later and just gave myself a huge pat on the back. And then early 2017, the excitement around the cryptocurrency market was really starting to build. 
I had started going to some meetups around New York City because uh, my wife told me that I was talking about cryptocurrency too much and uh, she didn't want to talk about it that much. So I started going to some meetups and you had to um, talk to somebody else. I had to talk to somebody else. I had to find some other friends that wanted to geek out on, uh, you know, cryptocurrency stuff. And um, in early 2017, the people that were going to these meetups started to change and it switched from being some of the early adopters, hardcore computer scientists, uh, libertarians, you know, people who think the global economy is going to melt down and we need cryptocurrency to save us. It switched from being primarily those types of folks to a lot more venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, folks who were, you know, leaving their job on Wall Street and coming to a meetup to talk about cryptocurrency because everyone was so excited about it. And the light bulb moment for BlockFi actually came from a personal experience where I was uh, applying for a loan to buy an investment property in Texas, where I'm originally from. And the value of my Bitcoin and Ether had gone up quite a bit. And I thought, you know, why don't I put this on my financial statement just to see what the bank says? And the bank said, you know, not only do we not view these assets as having any value whatsoever, but we're going to put you through a couple extra, you know, compliance checks on now our Now that end. you have the Bitcoin, you're now suspicious. We're worried you might be involved in some illicit activity. You know, we see that you have a job and W-2 income and all that good stuff. But uh, we're, we're worried you might be doing some illicit activities on wow. the side. And uh, that was basically my light bulb moment for BlockFi. You know, like every other asset class, there's going to be a need for debt and credit products. Banks are probably going to be a long way away from being uh, active in the sector, lending and providing the other types of financial services that they traditionally provide and uh, decided to start a company around that idea. And that's back in the summer of 2017. So basically providing people the opportunity to borrow against their Bitcoin holdings and instead of selling it and maybe earning a paying a capital gains tax or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That was the first uh, that was the first idea. That was the first product. You've got this value in your cryptocurrency holdings that no lender uh, is going to accept as actually being valuable. Uh, if you want to access some of that value without selling the same way you would borrowing against a portfolio of stocks or borrowing against the equity value in your home, there was no option to do that. And so, you know, BlockFi's first product was a loan product that enabled uh, that exact function. So let's take a step back because a lot of people have read about Bitcoin or Ethereum or digital assets in general. Or, but what is Bitcoin? What is it? The very simple way that I describe it is that it's, a, it's kind of a combination of two concepts, gold and other assets like it that for investors really serve as a hedge against macroeconomic uh, uncertainty and a store of value. And the second thing is a payment network. It's built on this platform that enables you to move value from one place to another. And those are the two things that, that Bitcoin is at the end of the day. Digital gold built on a payment network. Now, if you go a layer below that, it's decentralized, it's global and digital uh, by design. No single entity controls it. People don't even know who the original inventor was. The power for the network is contributed by miners that are distributed around the world. There's a lot of advanced computer science and game theory and economics built into the design of Bitcoin that basically enables it to keep running without a centralized governance structure. And so if I own a Bitcoin or a number of Bitcoins, am I really just owning a string of code or digits, bits and bytes on a server somewhere? 
Yeah, that's a, that's effectively you know what you what you own. Talk about the security around that because a lot of people think, well, geez, my my credit card information seems to get hacked every month or every year. You know, there's all sorts of fraud in financial services, and this is something that's even a sort of a step removed. How how do you feel about the security? of these assets and the way they're held. Bitcoin and other crypto assets have a unique property in that if you want to self-custody them, you can. So to stick with the gold analogy, if you want to hold you know, gold bars in your vault, uh, in the bunker, in the backyard, you, you have that option available to you. You can also have you know, uh, JP Morgan custody it in their gold vault. For Bitcoin, the way you can hold it yourself is by using a hardware wallet. Is this Cold storage, is that what this yeah, is so called? Yeah, that, that, well, cold storage just means anything that's offline. Okay. Using a hardware wallet yourself would be cold storage plus self-custody. So that's one option. And a lot of early Bitcoin adopters, uh, the hardcore Bitcoin folks, will advocate for people to use that option because it's, in theory, true to the nature of Bitcoin being decentralized um, and uh, it aligns with that kind of core Bitcoin ethos. For me personally, I tried that. It scared the crap out of me. I'm like, okay, I've got all this money sitting on this little USB stick in my, you know, nightstand, and I have to <laughs> call my sister and you know tell her twelve words that if something happens to me, she needs to use those to unlock the key. And it was all very discomforting. I wasn't sleeping well at night. So there are also very reputable custody type services. Some of them are combined with brokerages where you can. Uh, have someone else hold your assets for you, just like uh, traditional brokerages hold your stocks. Uh, some of the names in that space include companies like Gemini, Coinbase, uh, BitGo, Fidelity does it for institutions now. I'm sure they'll do it for retail at some point in the future. And you can also hold Bitcoin at fintech companies like Square and Robinhood. We'll get into the custody in a bit, but provide us with a review of the range of digital assets out there. Uh, you mentioned Ethereum before, but I've heard about Ripple and and others. Can you just describe the, the range of digital assets out there and what, what are the differences? Why are there these other digital tokens and currencies out there? Yeah, we basically had a kind of a Cambrian explosion of uh, uh, innovation and, and fraud. <laughs> um, and there's the full range there. So I generally bucket things into uh, three kind of functional areas where people or companies have built cryptocurrencies. So the first is that uh, decentralized store of value bucket. Bitcoin's in there. There's a couple of Bitcoin copycats like Litecoin and other flavors of Bitcoin that are also in that bucket. The second bucket is the iPhone analogy. So they're generally referred to as smart contract development platforms. Uh, Ethereum, Tezos, and a number of other cryptocurrencies that are in the top 10 by market cap fall into that bucket. And the idea with those was, can we use cryptocurrency and the network that it's built on to enable the development of other applications that use cryptocurrency? So can I have a blockchain network that enables developers to build applications that use the blockchain network. And so they're basically built on more flexible programming language and distributed ledger infrastructure that enables app development to exist on their network. And then the third bucket is utility tokens. This is basically a company, you know, imagine if an airline wanted to convert their, you know, reward points and their, you know, incentive mechanism 
into something that was tokenized and, and tradable on exchanges. That's the third bucket, utility token concept. That third bucket is where you've seen the highest kind of instance of illegitimate offerings and fraud, I would say. You know, we started BlockFi in the third quarter of 2017. And at that time, there was a massive bubble going on in that market. You could have a you know, random idea and throw up a website and conduct what was called an ICO and raise five million bucks with your eyes closed and 50 million if you tried a little bit for one of these utility tokens. And most of them now are, you know, dead or dying. And what happened to all that money? Because we're talking billions of dollars, right? Yeah, I mean, some some mixture of uh, the people who conducted the ICO ran away with it to, you know, it's still sitting in a treasury for the for the company and they're trying to figure out a way to, you know, build a platform or return some of that value to users. But it, it was a speculative bubble. And that part of the market is where you saw, you know, the biggest kind of deflation because there wasn't real value being created. And is that also where the SEC is concerned, whether these tokens are securities versus not securities? Correct. That's definitely where, you know, the SEC enforcement actions that they've taken have been the most frequent. And, you know, for what I believe are the right reasons, <laughs> you don't, uh, yeah, trying to, to do one of those and not following the proper compliance steps, not actually having something valuable sitting behind it and effectively offering an investment contract that wasn't backed by real investments or tangible assets and offering it to retail investors is obviously something that, you know, we don't really need more of. One of the words we hear a lot is the blockchain. Can you also explain that uh, to the listeners as well? What, what is the blockchain? You know, one of the easy ways that I think of it is that it's a database that by design enables multiple participants to contribute information and not need to rely on the other participants' trustworthiness to validate that information. So you've got some kind of either computer science or other system built into a blockchain that enables you to record a transaction on it, me to record a transaction on it, and us both to just look at that data on the blockchain, trust that it's accurate, and not need a third-party auditor, for example, to look at each of our books and tell us that it's reconciled, because that's just built into the way the database is architected and the way that we're using the database. There was a period of time in the financial industry where uh, everybody was saying, you know, it's blockchain, not Bitcoin. Blockchain is what is actually exciting. But at the end of the day, it's just a different version of a database technology. It's not going to solve all of the technology problems that, that we have. It's not going to change the way markets work unless market participants uh, decide to contribute time and effort into you know, using these new technologies. And a lot of what's happened so far, at least, has fallen into a bucket of innovation theater. So, you know, XYZ large financial institution is... Uh, looking at blockchain for, you know, some use case and they're going to invest $50 million into it and everybody gets excited and does a bit of work and pays a software development company to build this blockchain for them and then nothing ever happens. And a lot of those now are starting to kind of play out and come full circle. I think a lot of the things that, you know, advocates for blockchain technology say that you can use it for can also be done very effectively with a traditional database. If you just got the market participants to all use the same traditional database and contribute their data to it. But it's it's basically, you know, the components that enable cryptocurrencies to exist, that underlying technology design mm. is referred to as, you know, blockchain or distributed ledger. Are there applications of the 
blockchain and or of Bitcoin that we haven't seen yet that you think will be revolutionary or compelling or interesting? Or is Bitcoin basically a digital currency, a form of digital gold, and that's how it will be used in the future as well? Yeah, so I don't, I don't think um, Bitcoin is necessarily going to change. I think that's its use case. Um, I think given that use case, it means different things to different people. If you're you know, based in the U.S., it means one thing to you. If you're based in Argentina, it might mean a completely different thing. I'm a bit of a contrarian in the, in the crypto world in that I have a belief that uh, fiat currencies moving on some form of blockchain payment rails is going to be bigger than Bitcoin. So you know, whether that's a central bank issuing their currency on a decentralized payment rail or a private company like Facebook creating a currency that moves on blockchain payment rails, I think you'll see some innovation there that will eclipse Bitcoin and basically take advantage of the ability to move around value on a new payment network that's not controlled and siloed by banks who, at the end of the day, for a lot of payments, extract a pretty high toll and don't uh, deliver the best customer experience. How does one buy, hold, sell Bitcoin? What are the ways in which people are doing that today? Yeah, so I mean, the, the easiest way to do it is if you already have an account with a company like SoFi or Robinhood or Square, traditional fintech companies that have now uh, enabled people to you know buy Bitcoin on their platform, just do it there. If you don't already have an account at a place where you can buy Bitcoin, then you can look at other viable options like uh, Coinbase is the biggest and most popular in the U.S. market. Gemini is another you know, great, popular, secure, reputable option. And it feels just like buying a stock. I mean, you'd sign up. They you know, check your identity to make sure you're you know, who you say you are and not on any sanctions lists. You send them money using ACH or wire or a credit card. Once your money's on the platform, you can buy Bitcoin at the current price and then you can hold it there safely. And when you talk about hold it there safely, is it an insured asset? Like, you know, in uh, a brokerage account, we have what's called SIPC insurance. And if it's at a bank, we have the FDIC. Is there anyone standing behind these custodians for digital assets currently? Uh, there, there are, but it's, um, it's the private insurance market, not a, you know, not the federal government or I actually don't know how SIPC is structured, but it's either a consortium or the federal. Go- yeah. So a, a consortium of all the participants. We haven't evolved that far uh, in terms of the insurance coverage. Um, but all of the platforms that I mentioned have private insurance that protects customer cryptocurrency funds in the event of a loss from hacking or, uh, you know, employee uh, malfeasance, that type of stuff. So, so they are insured. And as a retail individual, there's plenty of insurance as a, you know, institution, uh, who, you know, needs to put hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars to work in an asset class to make it relevant to you. We're, we're not quite there yet as an industry in terms of the level of insurance coverage. Let's uh, shift gears to BlockFi itself. You founded this company approximately two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. What's been the development to date? How have you funded it and the growth and what's the vision for the future for BlockFi? Uh, development to date, we have two products that are that are in market now. The first is that loan product, which launched in January of 2018. We've originated a little over 50 million in principle for for that product. The second product is an interest account where people can earn interest on their Bitcoin or 
Ether or uh, Stablecoin Holdings. Um, that launched this year and has grown really quickly. Uh, it's a little over 500 million in, in AUM and in that product today. We have uh, tens of thousands of customers, uh, 60 employees, a little over 60 employees now. Uh, we've raised uh, three rounds of equity funding, multiple lending capital or, or debt financing structures as well. What kind of investors have you raised money from in both equity and the, and the debt to, to back the loans? Sure. So on the equity side, it's been a mix of traditional venture capital investors and then strategics from uh, the cryptocurrency sector or traditional financial sector who are dipping their toe into the cryptocurrency sector. So our most recent round was a, a Series A that was $18.3 million. The lead investor was Velar Ventures, which is a New York-based fintech-focused venture investor. We were actually their first investment that directly touches the cryptocurrency sector. They've led Series A's in companies like TransferWise and N26 and Stash. And then we also had participants like Fidelity, Susquehanna, Galaxy Digital, Acuna Capital, Consensus Ventures, Purple Arch Ventures, you know, quite a few others from the venture capital or crypto investment world. Um, and then on the lending capital side, it's been primarily private credit investment groups. And one of the unique things your company does is you, you can earn interest if you deposit Bitcoin in the account at BlockFi. How does that work? And what kind of rates are we talking about? Yeah, sure. So uh, currently you can earn a 6% annual interest rate on your Bitcoin that's paid in Bitcoin uh, that's held in a BlockFi account. The way that works is uh, we are lending the Bitcoin to institutional borrowers who want to borrow it to either pad their balance sheet for market making and proprietary trading strategies that they're conducting, or they want to short Bitcoin, or they want to use it to hedge other positions that they have. So we're basically, you know, go back to the first time you heard about what a bank does. Some people have extra capital, they put it at the bank, and then the bank lends that to people that need the capital. We're doing that same thing just with Bitcoin. And our depositors are primarily retail uh, and smaller asset managers. Our borrowers are exclusively institutional borrowers. And the vision for the future, banks have expanded, since you use that analogy, into all sorts of things, wealth management, proprietary trading, private equity, et cetera. What's the vision for BlockFi as you build out your business? Yeah, so we, we see the company going through three distinct phases. And the phases are defined by who our potential customers are and what products we're offering them. So we're now in the process of moving out of phase one and into phase two. In phase one, we only had products that were relevant to people who already own cryptocurrency. You're not going to get a loan secured by your Bitcoin or earn interest on your Bitcoin if you don't have any yet. And in phase two, we're going to start launching products that enable us to target folks who don't own cryptocurrency yet. And there's two products that we want to bring to market over the next 12 months as part of that expansion into phase two. The first is the ability to buy and sell cryptocurrency. You know, hopefully if I come back on the show a year from now and you ask, where should someone get cryptocurrency? BlockFi will be part of that list of places where you can buy your first Bitcoin. And the second product we want to launch is a Bitcoin rewards credit card. So basically just swapping in Bitcoin instead of airline miles or normal cash back in a traditional credit card targeted towards U.S. consumers. So enabling someone who doesn't want to take the leap of, you know, I'm going to use my own money to buy Bitcoin uh, to earn it in a way that's uh, very familiar uh, to people. And then we think there's this phase three where we become a lot more focused on markets outside the U.S. 
and on consumers who may not even want to own any Bitcoin. And so this is the traditional currencies moving on blockchain payment rails vision of the world. So someone in Brazil or Argentina could open an account with BlockFi, use Bitcoin as an on-ramp into dollar exposure, and then hold dollars in an account with us, earning interest on it, conducting payments with it, et cetera. So we think of that as being phase three for the company. Interesting you mentioned Brazil in an example, because I think one of the hallmarks of the digital assets industry is the global nature of it. it, it I think it's become a hedge for people in often in countries whose governments may be imploding or economies are imploding. They often buy Bitcoin and you often see a spike in Bitcoin prices when some of these countries go through their upheavals. Talk about the global nature of this asset, what that means for your business and for this industry overall. Yeah, so I actually think it's, um, it's something that the industry would be well served uh, to talk about more. Because I do think there's a you know, global social impact angle to everything that's happening in the crypto space because it's as open as the internet is. Traditional American sanctions don't work on the Bitcoin network because it's decentralized. A you know 14-year-old in Bangladesh or Australia or Brazil or wherever could buy and hold this asset and they could store it themselves and self-custody it if they needed it. From a company perspective, it creates an opportunity to deliver products at an unprecedented scale because for a company like BlockFi to work with someone in Brazil, in the traditional fintech world, we would need to go down to Brazil, create an entity, establish a partnership with a Brazilian bank, Brazilian payment processor, before we ever conducted a single transaction. But because we're using assets that move on blockchain payment rails, we can forego a few of those steps if we decide to. And as long as we're adhering to our KYC and AML requirements under FinCEN and the Bank Secrecy Act here in the US, we can do it in a way that's compliant with US regulations. So you have an opportunity to launch products globally if you're using digital assets in cryptocurrencies that you don't have if you're just a traditional fintech company always operating with money in bank accounts. Let's talk about regulation for a sec. It hasn't really developed yet is my understanding. We don't have a particular government agency solely focused on digital assets. It seems to cut across many agencies and also many state banking departments around the country. Obviously, it creates complexity for your business, but maybe just give a quick overview of the regulatory environment around digital assets today. Yeah, sure. So a couple of different uh, agencies are uh, involved. The IRS was actually the leader in terms of issuing guidance. They did that uh, over five years ago now, and they said Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is property. If you make money on it, you pay taxes just like you do with any other type of property. But since then, the most uh, impactful regulatory development has been from the CFTC. They regulate futures, derivatives, commodities, any type of fraud that happens with any type of commodity or financial asset. They kind of staked their claim on Bitcoin a little over a year ago now, uh, towards the end of 2017. And when they did that, they also enabled the launch of uh, Bitcoin futures on both the CME and the CBOE. So in terms of impact on the industry, uh, that, that's been the most impactful because it allowed certain types of institutional capital to uh, participate in the space who simply couldn't get comfort participating uh, prior to that. From a fintech company perspective, 
there are federal and state regulations that we have to comply with. And from BlockFi's perspective, we have various licenses and registrations as a result of those requirements. So BlockFi today at the federal level is an MSB, money services business. Um, And at the state level, we hold lending licenses and money transmission licenses depending on the state and and what their you know particular regime is is that a big burden on your business to keep track and comply with all of these regulators um, i mean it's it's certainly a uh, it's certainly something that requires time and resources uh, we've got you know over 5 people on the team now just in our compliance department but i think relative to you know maybe some other folks in the cryptocurrency sector we came into that burden relatively uh, eyes wide open because we had worked at online lending companies in the past, which through, you know, similar requirements, you either get your state licenses or you partner with a bank and those are pretty much the only two paths you can go down. So, so we knew that regulatory initiatives was going to be a component of our cost structure and development uh, structure. So it, it's a burden, but it doesn't feel that bad because we expected it. Let's uh, shift gears. You, in your career, you, you've been an entrepreneur. You've worked at organizations, mostly entrepreneurial, growth-oriented companies. You're now in the position of being founder and CEO of quite a large organization. I don't know if we talked about the number of employees. Maybe you can mention it. But talk about that transition for you and being a CEO, the, the challenges you're facing, what you're kind of learning as you're doing this and building this company. Uh, we're we're a little over 60 people now at BlockFi. Parts of being a CEO that uh, that I absolutely love. You know, one one of the things I struggled with in my younger days was this feeling that I oftentimes had the right answer but couldn't get people to listen to me. And when you when you're the CEO, you don't have that problem at all. I mean, if you want something to get done, you have the full uh, you know, resources of the company available to you and you can change priorities and get that thing done. What's been challenging for me has been finding the right balance between having a really, you know, happy and positive uh, work environment where people are healthy and, and enjoying their lives, even outside of the professional side and building as quickly and aggressively as we need to, given the market that we're operating in, you know, the expectations that we have on the company being, you know, a venture-backed, ambitious company. But we've been really fortunate to have uh, great leadership, incredibly low turnover. We're going through the process now of kind of defining the culture of the company, which is always a really fun exercise. Uh, We've benefited from a lot of attention being on the sector in terms of uh, our ability to recruit great talent. We're in New York, so, you know, a lot of the expertise that we need and building financial products is available here in terms of uh, the talent pool. It's been awesome. You know, it's been a ton of fun. And uh, I think it would be really challenging for me to not be the CEO in the future. This podcast is about fintech, but it's also about investing. One of the things I like to talk about with my guests is their own personal investing and their strategies and how they approach uh, building wealth for themselves. Obviously, you have a lot of incentive on the stock side of your company. But when you think about saving for retirement, those types of things, what, what do you do? What kind of plan do you have in place, if any? Um, are you programmatic about it or are you ad hoc? How does that work? Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a mixture of uh, a mixture of both. So I have uh, a portion of my assets in the kind of set it or forget it, you know, robo advisor type 80, 20, 60, 40 stocks, bonds, 
uh, type model. But then I manage directly a larger percentage of my assets than I think uh, a lot of people do. I manage those uh, both in the public equity markets where I have kind of a, a barbell strategy, which on one side I focus on specialized REITs uh, and other you know areas where I think there's a kind of like tangible physical component to the business with a moat built around it. And then on the other end uh, of the barbell strategy, tech companies, things with high margin, high growth rates, using technology, um, and, and cutting out the stuff in the middle. I'm not a big fan of, you know, oil and gas or consumer goods. Like I, I feel like there's this spectrum and I, w I like being on both ends of it. I have what most people would probably consider an unhealthy allocation to cryptocurrency, but it's served me very well because my cost basis is very low. And then I've also invested a fair amount into direct real estate opportunities, either you know myself uh, purchasing investment properties or on some of the real estate crowdfunding platforms uh, like Fundrise and Realty Mogul. And is that because you like the current yield that, that those opportunities provide you? Current yield, tax benefits, it's a tangible asset, uh, produces cash flow. All good things. All good things. What are the skeptics about Bitcoin missing? What you you know, it's almost like the world falls into two camps. Uh, there are people who are proponents of digital assets, Bitcoin, all, all of these things, and there are others who say this is a fraud, a scam. It's a bubble waiting to truly burst. What are the skeptics missing? What have they missed? Well, I think. Oftentimes, and this, this is true for a lot more than just cryptocurrencies, people get so polarized with their opinions. And so, you know, you can't be like uh, a 30% skeptic on something. You have to be like hardcore, it's, it's horrible, or you have to be all in. And I think that oftentimes people who are on either end of that spectrum have failed to effectively communicate and understand any of the points that the other side is making. And that's especially true with cryptocurrency. And we've seen this evolution play out very publicly. You know, Jamie Dimon, for example, called Bitcoin a total fraud, said it was a scam. Six months later, he was still talking about it, but said he didn't know why he was still talking about it. Now, you know, JP Morgan releases market research on the cryptocurrency sector and, and makes, uh, you know, directional calls for a lot of their institutional clients. So, you know, I think it on both sides, it's just a lack of understanding. I understand both sides. I fall somewhere in the middle. And I think that what the industry needs is more education and more education in a way that's familiar to people who aren't technologists, who aren't excited on, at the surface layer about the word cryptocurrency. They think it's scary. So the more things we do to educate people in a way that's friendly and familiar and highlights the positive aspects of what could come out of the cryptocurrency industry, uh, the better off I think it will be. Okay, we've now reached that point in the Squashing the Markets podcast where we have the lightning round. So I'm going to give you, which you haven't seen, pairs of words. You need to pick one, but you don't need to explain why. Let's do it. Here we go. Bitcoin or Ethereum? Bitcoin. New York or Texas? New York. Warren Buffett or Mike Novogratz? Novogratz. Apple or Google? Google. Nadal or Federer? Federer. Silicon Alley or Silicon Valley? Silicon Alley. Brooklyn or Manhattan? Manhattan. And because of the podcast itself, squash or tennis? Squash. All right. 
Zach Prince, a pleasure to have you on Squashing the Market. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.